All right, well, good morning, church. Welcome back. We are in the middle of a series, as you can see, called Seven, looking at the seven letters that are sent to the seven churches of Revelation in that book. But I want to ask you a question to start off this morning. How many of you loved to play Legos when you were a kid? Any Legos fans out there? Okay, all right, quite a few, I see. Well, this morning, I actually brought a uh, my... My daughter's Lego set with me here, um, some big Legos. In fact, she was a little upset at me this morning, and she said, Dad, why are you taking the Legos? And I said, it's for the Lord. Don't worry about it. <clears throat> but here, I, I loved to build castles when I was a kid. They looked a little bit like this. Uh, my Legos were smaller, uh, but I, I loved to do it. It looked a, bit, a little bit like this. In fact, I got so into building the Legos, I actually named my castle and my whole land Boblandia. It was, it was amazing, it was beautiful, and it was all in my mind, but it was great. Uh, now, even though my daughter likes to play with Legos, and, uh, and I brought him here with me this morning, I think there's a principle that we can take from playing with Legos. And you, you're saying here, well, you're a little crazy, but here's the principle. You can build a kingdom no matter how big your Legos are, and even beyond your Legos. In fact, recently I took uh, Jenna to the mall, and we found that there's a Lego store. Have you ever been there? It's a Lego store in the mall, and uh, there's an area where the kids can go play with Legos while uh, the adults can look around at these adult-geared Lego sets, and they want you to buy one. In fact, if you like playing with Legos as a kid, you can buy sets like this. You can buy maybe the Empire State Building if you like architecture and you want to build that. Uh, For only $150, you can build this, right? Um, If you are a Star Wars fan, you can build the Millennium Falcon. Um, If you're a Harry Potter fanatic, you can actually build Hogwarts. And I found this interesting. There's a new Frozen movie come out. If you want to build the Frozen Castle, you can actually build that as well. If you like cities, there's more cities to build. On and on and on it goes. My point in bringing Legos up is this. We love Legos, I think, because we love to build our own kingdoms. But in building those kingdoms, we are often tempted to fall in love with them, like I was with my little Boblandia world. Now think about that for a second, because that's pretty deep. I know as a three-year-old, you didn't sit back and think, man, what are these Legos going to teach me when I'm 30 and 40 and 50 and maybe even 80? I don't, you know. You just loved playing with Legos when you were a kid. But as an adult, I want to ask you this morning, how do you build your own kingdom? Now, see, as I've gotten older, I've come to the realization that everyone in life, I think, has an agenda. Everybody has an agenda. Some of them are good agendas. Some of them are not so good agendas. But everybody has them, including me. And if you want to know how you build your kingdom, really a good question to ask is this. What is my agenda Like, what's the first thing you talk about with somebody when you meet somebody new? It it could be a new project you're working on. It could be a business you're starting up or a, a new car you're building. It could be your kids, right? You're talking about the school they got into or the college they're going to. And when you talk with others, you want them to see what a good parent you are. It can even be ministry. I mean, for me, it's often been ministry endeavors and successes and failures, If you want to know where you're building your own kingdom, another question you can ask is, where do I get defensive? Because if somebody took that thing away from you, you would be devastated. I mean, when you were a little kid, if somebody knocked down your Lego kingdom, you were pretty upset, right? 
Now this week we've come to the fourth church in our series, the church at Thyatira. And what's interesting about the church of Thyatira is that unlike the churches we've been looking at in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, this church is not said to be experiencing persecution. Their problem is that they're loving the world too much, seeking to be influential in the world. They're building their own kingdom in their city, and in many ways, they're doing quite well as a church. But their success, as we'll see, has been colored by compromise. And so Jesus writes these words to them as we come to our mailbox once again this week. The letter to the Thyatirans says this. To the angel of the church in Thyatira writes, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now that's a hot letter. I better put that back in the mailbox because my hands are going to burn. Blazing fire, burnished bronze. What is going on here? Well, right out of the gate, there's a couple unique things I want you to notice about this letter to this church at Thyatira. First, it says these words come from the Son of God. And this is the only time this title is used for Jesus in the book of Revelation. Now, using this title was a direct challenge to the imperial cult at the time. In fact, emperors of this area claimed to be deities and saviors. The Greek god Apollo was viewed as the protector of Thyatira. And so this title was really a direct challenge to them. Now, that's important because secondly, secondly, metalworking was a prominent industry in Thyatira. And these metal workers would have been well acquainted with blazing fire and burnished bronze that they used in their industry. So Jesus is speaking right to them where they are. And unlike Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira was not a prominent city. Right? It was a rather small, middle-class, working city located on the route between Pergamum and Sardis. In fact, a, probably a comparison would be this is like Pittsburgh or Cleveland. It's the, it's the city you pass through on your way from New York to Chicago, the more prominent cities. Now, more importantly than that, these tradesmen of this city were expected to join the trade guilds of the day. In fact, a modern-day example may be labor unions. So think about Thyatira as kind of the ancient rust belt of this postal route. Workers in this city would pledge allegiance to the local 88 or whatever labor union it was. And these groups were important to the social and economic life of the city. In fact, to not join one of these trade guilds would mean that you would experience economic hardship for both you and your family. And so it's clear as we'll see in the letter, that believers were clearly tempted to compromise their beliefs in order to join these trade guilds. Pastor Abraham Cho says it this way. He says, the temptation of the church at Thyatira was not to hate the world, but to love it. The church loved the world and their ability to influence it too much. Their desire to build their Lego kingdom took them to a very dark place. And so what I want you to see this morning, church, is that we do the same thing. In many ways, we have a lot more in common with the church at Thyatira than we do with our previous churches. Again, their problem wasn't persecution, it was compromise. And specifically, compromise out of a love for the present kingdom. 
The French writer Alain de Baton notes that all of us have two love stories. The first love story is a romantic one, that we all want to find intimacy with somebody else. But our second love story is with the world, that we crave the ability to make a difference, to influence others, to be economically well off. We want to build our own kingdom. It's the second love story that leads us to compromise. We are the people of Thyatira. We're not facing persecution like the other churches, but we must beware falling in love with the world. And so to confront this complacency, I want to suggest we have to do three things. First, we have to put our deeds in the fire. Second, we have to confront our false prophets. And finally, we have to find the brightest star. With that in mind, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you this morning and I I plead on behalf of your people and on behalf of the preacher, Lord, that you would soften our hearts today, that we we would be able to be, that we would be able to come before the fire, Lord, and be refined, that you would remove the parts of us that are, that are not pleasing to you and that you would make our hearts pure, desiring you, Lord Jesus. Help us to hear this morning what you would say to us, our church, through the church of Thyatira, today, Lord. And so we give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first, first we have to put our deeds in the fire. So Jesus comes to the church at Thyatira with eyes on fire, right? But look at what he says to the church first. In verse 19, he says this, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Now, I find this verse really interesting because when someone comes to me with flaming eyes, I'm expecting a rebuke, right? Like I'm expecting him to look around at the church of Thyatira and say, repent, you workers of iniquity. But that's not what he says. No, he says, I know your deeds. And and actually, there's some good things going on here. Unlike Ephesus, Thyatira still has love. Remember that rebuke at Ephesus? We had that, that heart in ice on the stage. Not Thyatira's problem. They are people filled with love and faith. In fact, they're even serving when it's difficult. They're they're doing more now than they used to do, he says. In other words, in many ways, this church is growing. John Stott makes this observation. He says, the church of Thyatira understood that the Christian life is a life of growth, of progress, of development. I mean, listen, I I picture this church as having a well-developed spiritual formation plan People are going through it, right? They they may have even been running spiritual gift summits like the one that we have coming up in November every year so that people understood their gifts and where they could serve. This church was making pleas, what was not making pleas for people to volunteer because everybody was getting to the back and fighting to sign up on the sheets, I mean, I imagine this people were, were in, these people were inviting others into their homes for dinners. They were having prayer meetings. They were engaging with people who don't yet believe. I mean, they were, they were probably running secret ministries like the one Paul and Kathy Wolford are starting tonight. My point is this. 
the church at Thyatira was probably doing all these activities, and the church was growing, and so Jesus, in his grace, comes to the church, and the first thing he says is, you're doing some good things. And that is why this letter is so convicting to me, and it should be to you. Because on the surface, everything appeared good. But below the surface, something was desperately wrong. And what the letter is going to tell us is this. It's possible to be a growing, vibrant church and yet have spiritual problems below the surface. I mean, if I come back to this image of Legos one more time, from a distance, you can look at this and you can think, this is really sturdy, right? It's solid, but as soon as you get close to it, you can see that on the inside, it's hollow, and it's just a hollow piece of plastic. And if I were to hit it, it would break. There's, there's nothing below the surface to keep it sturdy. And Jesus, our Savior and King, says here, I know your deeds. I know your hearts. He knows our strengths and our weaknesses. He knows our motivations for building our own kingdoms. He knows not just our deeds but the desires behind those deeds. And so I would ask you this question today. What is your motivation for good works? What is your motivation for good works? Examine your need to influence people. Is your love really love? Is your service really for the good of others or for your own self-aggrandizement and a need to be respected? It may be that you have a selfish agenda motivating your good deeds. Put your deeds in the fire and see what's revealed. There's an image from the book of Malachi called the refiner's fire. Metal workers of that day would expose their metals like silver to extremely high temperatures, and the refinement process would burn off any unwanted materials and impurities, and they would reveal just the, the purified silver. And so if you want to know if your deeds are pure, you have to expose them to the fire. What is the motivation for our deeds? Because if we pursue them with wrong motivations, it leaves us susceptible to the voice of the false prophets. And that's our second point. We have to confront our false prophets. Now, Jesus opens the letter with grace and encouragement, but we very quickly discover that the underlying problem at Thyatira is this in verse 20. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Wow. Now, Jesus wastes no time here getting to the point, right? With these words, he reveals the person behind the curtain. And this, again, is why this letter should be so convicting to us. Yes, they were doing a lot of good things. Their church was growing, and yet they were tolerating serious sin and immorality in their midst. So, let's talk about Jezebel for a second. Who was Jezebel? Here's a modern-day rendition. In the 9th century B.C., Jezebel was an unbelieving princess from the kingdom of Sidon. And the Israelite king Ahab, you may remember him, married her for political reasons. And so as a result, Jezebel brought to Israel her false gods and legions of pagan priests. 
And they spread this worship of false gods all over the nation of Israel, gods like Baal and Asherah. In fact, in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, we see Jezebel standing behind 850 prophets of Baal as they're trying to kill the true prophets of God. Jezebel was sinister. And after this, in fact, Jezebel became a symbolic name, like, like somebody calling someone a Benedict Arnold. Right? You know that means they're a traitor. And if you say of a woman she's a Jezebel, typically it means they're controlling and manipulative and seductive. You don't want to name your daughter Jezebel. But in the context of the church at Thyatira, we should ask, who is Jezebel? Well, most commentators will say that this is referring to a person or a group of people who are teaching the Thyatiran believers to worship false gods, just like the original Jezebel had done. And so Jesus is connecting these false teachers to that Old Testament Jezebel character. And here's how this played out in Thyatira. So let me, let me paint a picture. I mentioned earlier that Thyatira was a merchant city whose primary industry was metalworking and textiles. But the city was controlled by these trade guilds. And so the, these labor unions of their day, they, what they would do is they would, they would pay homage to pagan gods, especially Apollo and Artemis. And that homage would include attendance at the sacred festival of this god, eating meals in their temple, worshiping them, and yes, engaging in the sexual immorality associated with those pagan festivals. And so the real problem for the church at Thyatira is this. They tolerated this activity. Did you hear that? The people of God allowed this. They maybe said, oh, that's just not a big deal. Now, you may be saying, wait a minute, hold on a second. I thought we just heard this church was thriving. I thought these believers were growing in their faith. I thought they were pursuing Jesus with their whole hearts. This was a church known for their love, right? But their love had led to permissiveness. And so here we read they tolerated idolatry and the sexually immoral practices that went with it. Now, i got to briefly say something hard here. I mean, if you're visiting this morning and you're a first-time guest, wow. <laughs> what a church to start off with. I'm not talking about you because Jesus here is speaking to his church. God intended human flourishing to happen when sex was in marriage. One man, one woman for life. It's his gift to his people. But sex with anybody who's not your wife or your husband, Jesus says that's sin. I mean, it's a simple sexual ethic. But there are people out there who will say it's okay to tolerate sex outside this boundary. That you can be a faithful Christian and hook up with your friends in college. That you can be a Christian and have an affair. That you can be a Christian and look at porn that you can be a Christian couple and live together with all the benefits of marriage but none of the commitments. So he's saying here some people are more tolerant than Jesus, and what Jesus says is that's deception. He says you got to choose. You're either going to follow Jesus or Jezebel. Who will it be? Now, that false prophet Jezebel deceived the people of God in the Old Testament, and now these new Jezebels were deceiving the people of God in the New Testament. So we have to confront the false prophet. 
And you may also be asking, well, why would they do this? And the answer is that their economic livelihood and their cultural influence depended upon this. It would be jeopardized if they didn't take part in these practices. Their kingdom would crumble, and so they compromised. And that leads us to the first sub-point under this section that I want to mention, and it's this. We have to confess spiritual adultery. Confess spiritual adultery. Adultery. Now, while sexual immorality was certainly rampant in the ancient world this, uh, was, and was likely making its way into the church, idolatry was the key issue here. Idolatry is worship of someone or something other than the true God, and when we worship someone or something other than the true God, we commit spiritual adultery. I mean, the prophet Jeremiah did not mince words when he wrote this to the people of Israel. He said, because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood, other wood created gods. And the language of adultery there conjures up images of sexual unfaithfulness. And so literally, this passage in Jeremiah is saying that God's people are sleeping with false gods made out of created things. Israel has cheated on me, he says. She has been unfaithful to me. See, the Thyatiran believers compromised and tolerated these practices because, listen to this, they didn't want to face the consequences if they didn't. Money and influence were on the line. In fact, scholar Simon Kistemaker says this, Christians who refused to honor pagan gods, eat meals sacrificed to an idol, and engage in sexual immorality jeopardized their material necessities. They were regarded as outcasts of society. So the challenge for believers at Thyatira was not persecution, but economic hardship and loss of cultural influence. And so let me ask this question. What idolatry do you tolerate? Are there some activities in your life that you fear if you gave up, you would lose something? And this, I think, is where we can relate more to Thyatira than to most churches, because we may not be feeling the sting of persecution yet, but we certainly have felt and seen social ostracism that comes from holding firm to biblical values. I mean, we regularly see people of faith and their businesses called out, sued, and shamed for daring to voice and live out their beliefs in things like traditional marriage. We see economic ramifications for states that would seek to pass laws protecting the unborn. Back when the state of Georgia recently passed a law making abortion illegal after a heartbeat was detected, Netflix, the streaming giant, giant, threatened to take their business out of the state. Now, we don't live in Georgia, and we probably don't work for Netflix, but Would you be willing to change your career if your employer asked you to engage in practices you believed were immoral? Maybe you're a public school teacher, and all of a sudden there's curriculum changes that you can't in good conscience teach. Maybe you're a small business owner, and all of a sudden people won't do business with you because they found out you're a Christian and what you stand for. If the government comes and takes the church's tax-exempt status because we will not bow to the cultural and political forces of the day, will we stand firm? 
See, staying true to Jesus may mean economic sacrifices, and so the question is, would you stand up for what you believe even if you lost money? That's what the church of Thyatira was facing. And as a result for standing up for what they believed, their cultural influence diminished. But see, what we learn also is that in this letter, some people in the church, these Jezebels, were, these false prophets, were convincing believers that it was okay to engage in these acts. Right? They were saying things like, well, it's not a big deal if you give in to the cultural forces. After all, you need to make sure you're on the right side of history, Right? See, friends, this is where the rubber meets the road for us. Jesus has harsh words for these false prophets. He says, confess your spiritual adultery. Will you worship me or some other God? Verse 21, I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. See, Jesus says, I've been gracious with these false prophets. I've given them time to repent. They are unwilling And that shows us our second point in this section. We have to run to repentance. Run to repentance. See, when you you confront uh, your false prophets, the ones that, that have been bringing lies into your life, you have to run to repentance. And yet we see Jezebel and her followers don't. Why? Why are people not willing to repent? Well, think about your own heart. When you are confronted with sin, what is your first reaction? I know for me, I try to justify my actions. I don't want people to call me out. I want people to understand why I did and why I thought I deserved it. We don't run to repentance because we believe, maybe at a subconscious level, we deserved that ability to sin. That that we're okay with God dying for some sins but not others. And we want to keep the parts of our lives that make us feel good. We want to keep that and hold that tight. Author Jackie Hill Perry writes this about believers and repentance. She says, the error is this. They have come to God believing that only a fraction of themselves needed saving. They have therefore neglected to acknowledge the rest of them also needs to be made right. It's like like coming to God offering only a portion of their heart for him to have as if he does not have the right to take hold of it all or as if what has been withheld from him can be satisfied without him. See, we don't run to repentance because we're not willing to offer God our whole heart. We're comfortable in our sin. We find identity in our sin. Maybe in some ways we find salvation in our sin. For the church of Thyatira to repent of their spiritual adultery would mean the loss of their economic livelihood, their influence in the culture, their ability to build their Lego kingdom. But Jesus warns them again of the consequences. He says this, So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. Now, most commentators don't think that Jezebel's followers were literally committing adultery with her. This refers to spiritual adultery. It refers to believing her lies that led to these pagan practices we already discussed. But God's point here is serious. He says, I don't want to share intimacy with another God. you got to repent and turn to me, or you will choose the way of pain. 
He gets even harsher in the next verse. He says, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now, the children here refer to Jezebel's followers within the church. And so this is a reminder to us that God knows our minds and hearts. Nothing is hidden from God. So run to repentance because he already knows our deeds. Now, just think for a second how foolish that is. How much of a fool do you have to be to think that you can hide from God? I mean, think about these Legos again for a second. My daughter and I love to do two things. We love to build Lego castles, right? And she loves it when I chase her around the house. Okay, so she'll get up and she'll be running and laughing and trying to hide from me. And at some point in that, in that activity, she will go over to one of these castles and she'll try to hide behind it. And she'll be sitting here giggling, ha, 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 thinking that I can't see her. Now, she's young and naive. But we do the same thing with God. We think, God, I'm just going to hide behind my Lego castle. You're not going to see me here, right? You can't see me. I mean, how foolish is that? And yet we still try. And that gets us to the third and final sub-point of this section. You have to allow yourself to be discovered. See, it's much easier to run to repentance when you're in relationship with a fellow believer who knows you and your weaknesses, and if you want to avoid the error of the church at Thyatira, you have to allow yourself to be discovered so that you can more easily run to repentance. And here's where many churches fail, in my opinion. Because in the beginning, we're told that this church at Thyatira is growing, that they had love and faith, that they were serving, that they were doing more things for God, right? And yet they were neglecting their pursuit of holiness, and so let me ask a question. Is it possible for people to do all these activities that are associated with the religious life and the Christian life and yet neglect a pursuit of holiness? I think people do it all the time. That in our private lives when no one is looking, we, we dabble in sins that seem anonymous. Oh, we confess it to God, but no one else. We look at things on the internet when we think no one is watching and we justify our actions because we think we deserve it, or we think it's not a big deal. What Jesus is saying to us today, church, is it is a big deal. It's a big deal because it hurts our witness, that people will, will see us as hypocrites if we don't stand out, that it's a big deal because it hurts our intimacy in community, because we can't be truly known if we're always hiding. See, didn't you just read the last few verses? God just said that he was going to strike Jezebel's children dead because of their spiritual adultery. So don't hide. Allow yourself to be discovered. Author Rosario Butterfield says it beautifully. She says, I think that churches would be places of greater intimacy and growth if Christ, in Christ if people stopped lying about what we need, what we fear, where we fail, and how we sin. In other words, fight for your holiness. <laughs> fight 
for your holiness. You have to confront those false prophets in your life who are feeding your lies and fueling your secret sins. Fight for your holiness. Stop focusing so much on building that Lego kingdom in your life and allow the Holy Spirit to start working on your heart and purifying it. And so Jesus concludes this section with these words, verse 24. He says, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. See, in this last section, he turns around to the rest of the believers And he says, to those of you who have not followed the voice of the false prophet Jezebel, hold on, I'm coming soon. Now that phrase, Satan's so-called deep secrets, is a very interesting one. There was a belief at the time of this writing that, that said this, essentially, that if you want to truly know God's grace, you have to experience evil. In other words, the deep things of Satan would help you understand the grace more fully. If you want to understand the light side, you've got to go to the dark side. But don't we do the same thing today? That too many of us explore the deep things of Satan by dabbling in rebellious activities? That if you're a teenager or a young adult here or listening today, let me encourage you. You don't need to go out and make poor decisions to experience God's grace. Don't think you're missing out because you you didn't have sex with someone before you're married or you didn't experiment with that drug. Contrary to popular belief, you don't have to cross that moral line in order to have fun. Instead, confront the false prophet. Fight for your holiness. It matters. Don't worship at the altar of pleasure. Worship at the altar of Jesus Christ himself. And when we confront the false prophets, we break their hold on our hearts. And if we do, Jesus promises a reward, but it's not what you think. Our final point is found in the sky when we find the brightest star. And so, as he's done in most of his letters, Jesus ends by promising a reward to his followers, And in doing so, he recalls several images from the Old Testament. He says, this to the faithful followers at Thyatira. Verse 26, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Right, so here he recalls images from Daniel chapter 7, where the Ancient of Days comes riding on the clouds, bringing an end to the reign of the great beast. And at the end of Daniel 7, we see the promise that believers will reign over the whole earth with him. In fact, later in Revelation, we see that this is a picture of us reigning with Christ in his millennial kingdom. But in the next verse, he gives us a reminder of whose kingdom this is. Verse 27, that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. Now, this is a loose quotation from Psalm 2, and Psalm 2 is a royal psalm where we see a picture of the nations of the world preparing for battle against God Almighty and his chosen one. And within the psalm, we see that the Messiah will defeat the kings of the earth, and here we see that Jesus is using the iron scepter to protect his people from harm. 
Jesus not only gives us his kingdom, but he promises to watch over us and protect us. Now take notice of that word rule. That is the Greek word poimano, which is often translated as shepherd. And so that, this, this translation uses the phrase iron scepter, but the tool of a, shepter, uh, of a shepherd is his staff. It looks a little bit like this. And so the verb to shepherd should be taken in the sense of wielding a shepherd's staff to ward off attacks from beasts. In other words, this verse is saying that Messiah will come with authority from the Father to protect his sheep and shepherd them. But then he says one final thing to the church at Thyatira. He says this, I also will also give that one the morning star. Now let me ask you, who or what is the morning star? When was the last time you saw the sunrise? Um, I'm not a super early morning person, uh, but back when I was in graduate school, I worked at Starbucks, and for some reason I, I agreed to work the early morning shift, which meant that I had to get up at the ungodly hour of 3.45 in the morning and drive to get to work by 4.30 a.m. Yes, it was awful. But the one saving grace of doing that was the fact that I always got to see the sunrise every morning. And it was beautiful. It was beautiful. And so all the way back at the beginning of this message, we discussed these Lego kingdoms that we build. And our motivation for building these kingdoms is often selfish. And when we build our own kingdoms, we often fall in love with them. And so the final word to the church at Thyatira here is, I think, a reminder of where our love and hope should really be. Who or what is the morning star? Well, to understand this verse, you have to go all the way back to the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 24, verse 17. It says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Who is this star? Well, of course, at the time, it was commonly thought to be a reference to the Messiah himself. And so as Jesus closes this letter to Thyatira, he's pointing believers to himself. And he takes them backwards in time, but then if you look forwards in time to the end of Revelation, Jesus says this. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you the testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Do you see that what Jesus is saying to the church at Thyatira is this, don't build your kingdom. I have given you myself as the greatest gift ever. I am your reward. Now, in the last few letters, we've talked about holding on for the reward if we remain faithful. But what is the reward? And see, when we talk about rewards, many of us have this picture of bigger mansions in heaven and piles of gold at our fingertips. But what I think Jesus is telling us here is that the reward is him. Now, I've referred to my daughter throughout this message, partly because I'm playing with her toys on stage. She's probably downstairs watching this crying. I love my daughter, right? And since she's young, I still have the benefit that she very much acts like she loves me. 
And when I come home from work, she could be sitting on the ground playing with her Legos, and she's building her little kingdom in her imagination. But as soon as the, the door opens and she hears me walk in the door, she will run to me and she'll shout, Daddy's home! And she'll give me a big hug, letting me know that she loves me. Because her reward is not that she got to build her little kingdom, but that she got to be with her father. And the question Jesus is asking us in verse 28 is this. Am I enough? Or do you think you need a bigger reward? You see, the church of Thyatira was doing a lot of good things, but they were missing the point. They didn't need to have more money or influence. What they needed was Jesus himself, the bright morning star. Just like I was enough for my daughter, he needs to be enough for the church. Now, as I mentioned, I am in a season of life where my daughter still acts like she loves me. But I have many friends with kids far older than mine. And one friend in particular told me these words over breakfast. He said, enjoy this season because it will end far quicker than you realize. You see, when children are young, they love being with you and you get used to walking in the door and then rejoicing that their father is home. But one day, and one day when you least expect it, and one day when you are not prepared, you will walk in the door expecting your kids to shout, Daddy's home! And instead, they will simply look up from what they're doing and look at you and say, hey. <laughs> and at that moment, you become an afterthought. You become an afterthought because they are more interested in doing something else or pursuing someone else. It's almost like they're saying, oh, it's just you. And that's the exact thing we do to Jesus. Oh, it's just you again. That we treat Jesus like we're a self-absorbed teenager who's building their own kingdom. And so if we come back to this kingdom of Legos, the church in Thyatira wanted to build their own kingdom. They weren't facing persecutions. They didn't want to be social outcasts. They don't want to go through economic hardships because of what they believe, and so they would build and build and build their own kingdom, and they would want more influence. And we do the same thing. We stop beholding the Savior, but Jesus, our great shepherd and protector, comes to us and says, let me be your shepherd. I am the bright morning star. Am I enough? See, I want you to build my kingdom. And so out of love, out of my shepherd's heart, I will break your kingdom so that you can focus on me again and build my kingdom. Church, put your deeds in the fire. Confront your false prophets and turn to the bright morning star. Behold our God once again because he is the only one who can offer you the love and influence your heart truly desires. Let me invite the worship team to come back on stage. They have one final song. And as they come, let me pray for us. 
Heavenly Father, we come before you. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and grace in our lives. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would capture our hearts once again, that you would help us to fall in love with you once again, Lord Jesus, that you would burn the impurities off of our hearts and off of our desires, Lord, that, that we could see you once again, that we could behold you, that we could say, I get to be with my Father. Lord, may that be enough for us. And if it's not enough for us, Lord, purify our hearts. Burn off those impurities, Lord, that we could come closer to you, that we could see you as you truly are, Lord, and that that would motivate us to go out and tell others about you and your love. We praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.